Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I love having two bedrooms in our, our apartment because occasionally uh, we'll sleep in separate rooms. Maybe it's because I'm snoring. Maybe it's because one of us uh, is, is just not sleeping, suffering from insomnia. Uh, we have two dogs that, that like to stomp and take up a lot of bed space. Right. So sometimes it's just nice. And we have a little ritual where after we've slept in separate bedrooms, the next morning we come into the kitchen and have our coffee and uh, we we share what we what we did the night before, how we slept, if we had weird dreams, if we were reading something interesting, or uh, in the case last night, uh, if we were watching something yeah, interesting. We were both watching different shows in different rooms, and then so we ended up spending a great deal of time over coffee describing <laughs> what it was we watched. Yeah, this morning you were like, so uh, because of all the unusual activities going on, Dragon is really reticent to do these experiments at the ranch because of uh, the UFO activity and the uh-huh. paranormal stuff. Sure. Plus, there's these layers yeah. of conductive material in the ground there. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, secretive Skinwalker Ranch aliens right. are real. Right. And apparently, they did find some weird electromagnetic force in the Earth. That's what you said, yeah. 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 And then Kat comes back with, so there's this rat who moves to Paris and befriends a hapless garbage boy named Linguini and, and becomes a chef. <laughs> this is a pretty good example of where our brains go when left to their own devices. Hapless garbage boy. He's actually the heir to the ah, restaurant. Okay. It, uh, doesn't, it doesn't matter. All right. A film that you and I really do enjoy, though, we both enjoy it very much, and we've seen it a few times over the years. It's Defending Your Life with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks. I love that movie. Meryl Streep is a queen. Oh, she is. And Mel, Bro- uh, Mel Brooks, Albert Brooks at uh, really one of his funniest moments. In that movie, Albert Brooks is hit by a bus on his birthday and goes to some place in the afterlife called Judgment City. 
And there he undergoes a life review in front of a panel of judges. Which includes Rip Torn. Who is wonderful. Wonderful. And I was scrolling around the other day, and that came up as a suggestion on one of my cue lists. And it got me thinking about the phenomenon of life reviews, or as other people refer to them, my life flashing before my eyes. I think that's such a cool concept. And the fact that she would get an opportunity to go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. See, my thought process there was <laughs> not to be mean, right. but to help that person or, you know, whatever it would have been. According to Wikipedia, the life review or flashback at death refers to a phenomenon widely reported as occurring during near-death experiences. It seems like a person will rapidly see the totality or at least much of their life history. Many of those who have had near-death experiences note they underwent a review of their life in which the meaning of their life was presented to them, but also how their life affected other people as well as an awareness of their thoughts and feelings of the people who they were affecting in their life. See, I've not heard about that. Of course, I've heard of your life flashing before your eyes, but I kind of always thought of it as just being like, you know, a brain thing. They have reported it as being... Uh, like a three-dimensional panoramic experience where they're almost observing it from a third-person perspective. Like VR? Yeah, like VR. And not only do you feel the feelings you were feeling, but Mm -hmm. you feel the feelings of the people that you were interacting with. Interesting. According to Wikipedia, Bruce Grayson, in his book, Psychology of Religion and Spirituality, he describes the life review as a rapid revival of memories that sometimes extend over the person's life. The memories are described as being in 3D and include a panoramic quality. And according to Jeffrey Long in his book, Near-Death Experiences, Evidence for Their Reality, The experience of a life review is often described from, as I mentioned, a third-person perspective. That's, to me, really interesting. Yeah. Again, according to Jeffrey Long, these experiences are lucid and organized while unconscious, comatose, or clinically dead. Here's a quote from his work from a person who actually experienced a life review in a near-death experience. Quote, I went into a dark place with nothing around me, but I wasn't scared. It was really peaceful there. I then began to see my whole life unfolding before me like a film projected on a screen from babyhood to life. It was so real. I was looking at myself, but better than a 3D movie, as I was also capable of sensing the feelings of the persons I had interacted with throughout the years. Wow. I could feel the good and the bad emotions that I made them go through. So we got that to look forward to. (coughs) According to research, those who have had near-death experiences, uh, many of them, a pretty high percentage of them, have experienced this type of phenomenon. Of course, this has intrigued people for generations, but is it real? Do you think it's possible? I don't know. Or is it just a strange trick of the brain when uh, it's becoming deprived of oxygen? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, um... Well, you know how I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There are tests that could be done that would go a long way in showing that it very well could be real. The most obvious would be to map the brainwave patterns through an, an EEG as a person dies. And not just a near-death experience, but like a person that actually dies. An actual clinical permanent death. Okay. 
If after a person dies, brainwave activity is still present in the areas of memory recall, that would suggest that the person is indeed still thinking and recalling memories from the past, possibly experiencing a life review. And we certainly have the technology to do this, and we have for, for decades, but the problem is you have to be set up and ready to roll before the person actually dies and being able to project exactly when that person is going to die and getting that person to agree uh, would be no easy feat. Right. So often in those moments before death, we're uh, instead in that pesky time period of trying to make them not dead. Yeah. And also the patient is going, oh, poor me, I'm going to die. Ugh. Selfish. Annoying. But the BBC reports just a few months ago, Medical professionals were working on an 87-year-old patient who had developed epilepsy. They hooked him up to measure his brainwave activity with an EEG, but during the process, unexpectedly, the man suffered a fatal heart attack. This is the first time that science has had this amount of scientific data of a dying human brain. And what they discovered was, for about a minute, 30 seconds before the patient died and 30 seconds after, the patient's brain waves follow the exact same patterns as dreaming or recalling memories. The team published in a study in Frontiers on Aging Neuroscience that brain activity of this sort could suggest that a final recall of life may occur in a person's last moments. Right. And since one of the things that you said that people recall is not just how they were feeling, but the feelings of those around them. Mm. I mean, generally, we know how we make people feel, right? Yeah. Well, I you think know, probably for the most part. For yeah. the, you know, if you do something nasty, I mean, people go like, oh, no, I wish they hadn't done that. And you kind of you kind of get that vibe. So it, I guess that makes sense that you would think about your life and how you made people feel. But the weird thing is that the brainwave activity continued 30 seconds after the heart stopped beating. Dr. Ajmal Zamar, one of the co-authors of the study, says they accidentally got the first ever recording of a dying human brain. He told the BBC, quote, this was actually totally by chance, and we did not plan to do this experiment to record these signals. So does this prove that the brain is experiencing a life recall or the person's life is flashing before their eyes? And if so, are they happy memories? Are they bad memories? What would the deal be? Dr. Zamar, again from an article in the BBC, said, quote, If I were to jump to philosophical, to the philosophical realm, I would speculate that if the brain did a flashback, it would probably like to remind you of good things rather than bad. But what's memorable would be different for every person. Dr. Zamar, right now, he is a neurosurgeon at the University of Louisville. And according to him, the data suggests that 30 seconds before the patient's heart stopped supplying blood to the brain, the patient's brain waves like that immediately follow the same patterns that are present when experiencing high cognitive demanding tasks like concentrating, dreaming, or recalling memories. It was strange because even before the heart stopped, it immediately shifted to this type of brainwave activity 30 seconds before it died and then continued for 30 seconds after. Okay, but the brain and the heart are so intertwined in mm. how they work. I mean, the brain 
would know, right, that it was not going to be sending certain instructions to the heart anymore, right? Maybe. I don't know. That in itself is uh, an intriguing thought. And the heart has to pump blood to the brain for the brain to keep working. So it would make sense that if the heart stopped, that the brain would continue for a bit until the, the blood stopped doing its thing. I mean, death is, yes, when the heart stops, but your brain still does stuff until it stops getting the blood that it needs to function. That's true. But what they're saying is that this is the first documented case that uh, it's not just random brainwave activity. Mm -hmm. It's the type of activity one sees when they're doing a highly complicated task like concentrating or remembering thoughts. So your, your brain's just saying, OK, it's time to get into life review mode. I don't know. Could be. Hmm. And as I mentioned, the activity continued for 30 seconds after the heart stopped beating. And that's a point which a patient is typically declared dead. Dr. Zamar said, quote, this could possibly be a last recall of memories that we experienced in life. And they're playing through our brain in the last seconds before we die. But one certainly can't definitively say that this is true based on a study of one. So it really doesn't answer the question. But it does pose another one. As you were just saying, you know, when exactly does life end? We've always considered it being when the heart stops beating, but should it be when the brain stops functioning? Absolutely. It's highly unlikely that we could gather enough case studies to flesh out exactly what's going on because of the rarity of this situation. However, though, in 2013, there was a study that, carry, that was carried out on healthy rats. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to like this. But it might give us a bit of a clue. The researchers discovered that there were high levels of brainwave activities at the point of death until 30 seconds after the rat's hearts stopped beating, exactly like the findings in the epileptic patient. Dr. Zamar said that uh, the similarities between the studies are, quote, astonishing. Hmm. He has hope now that because of this study, this one study on the 87-year-old epileptic patient, that perhaps it might open doors to more of the same types of research. Maybe now that we have seen what we can get with this type of study, that would encourage other people to agree mm -hmm. to be studied uh, in their final moments and expand the database. I guess my question is, um, you know, for why? That doesn't interest you? You, you, I mean, whether or not you think about your life before you die, yeah. I figure probably you do. Well, it's not that as much <laughs> as it is you're unconscious and your heart has stopped beating. Just to me, it seems like a lot of rats have to pay for something that to me seems pretty obvious. <clears throat> it's science, sweetie. We'll do it on people. That's what they want to do. I know, but you know they're going to do it on rats, too. I don't know that. You're, you're just speculating now. Well, you're speculating. I, that's my job. <laughs> Dr. Samar said, I think there's something mystical and spiritual about this whole near-death experience. And findings like this, it's a moment that scientists live for. My source material, the BBC, Wikipedia, Science Direct, and Missouri State Medical Association website. Some <laughs> fascinating reading there. Sure. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Adeline and Augusta Van Buren were two very forward-thinking women for 1916. They became the first women to travel across the entire United States of America on two solo motorcycles. They made it even though they were arrested two times. Not for driving motorcycles, but for wearing pants. We get an email curator at theboxofoddities.com. And I thought this was really fun because the email is not really about Box of Oddities so much. It's about the shallow end. Our new podcast that's coming right up. 
This email came from Kelly, and they said, I sent this article a while back, but maybe it's more suited for the shallow end, you guys. A man in my local area managed to blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to share it, but it's so amazing. And yes, you should absolutely talk about it on the shallow end. And I cannot wait. Let me see. Let me see what it is. Oh, yeah, that's that's perfect. (laughs) The shallow end with Schneebly and Toth. We're rolling that out very soon. We're just finishing up post-production on the first few episodes. Thank you so much, Kelly. And if you've got a suggestion for The Shallow End, uh, for now, you can send it to curator at theboxofoddities.com. Soon they'll have all their own stuff set up. But for now, we're uh, we're just doing it from here. And it's stories about people who've done really stupid things. At the very least, it'll make you feel better about yourself. It's magical. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Halfway through and you're still awake. You must be listening to The Box of Oddities. Okay. John George High, also known as the Acid Bath Murderer. I had to send you a message and be like, have you talked about the acid bath murderer? And you were like, yeah, I don't think so. I would have remembered that. Yeah. So that's why I felt like it was okay to just like throw it out there there. right away. Because you already knew I was considering it. Anyway, John George High was born into an affluent conservative family in Yorkshire in 1909. He was brought up in a fanatically religious household. His parents, John Robert High and his wife, Emily, uh, were so strict. Bible stories were the only form of entertainment allowed in their home. Participating in sports was forbidden. And according to High Sr., the world was evil and the family needed to keep themselves separate from the rest of the world. Well, I can get on board with the world being evil part, but <laughs> we still need to go to the store. Well, despite all this, High became very proficient at playing piano, which he learned at home, obviously, because he couldn't go outside to learn it. Um, and he won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield and then to Wakefield Cathedral, where he became a choir boy. After school, he was an apprentice to a firm of motor engineers. 
After about a year, he left that job and took jobs in insurance and advertising. But at 21, he was dismissed after being suspected of stealing. In 1934, High married Beatrice Hammer, and the marriage really didn't last long because High was arrested in October and sent to prison for fraud. Can we stop just for a moment yes. and really enjoy the name Beatrice Hammer? It's a wonderful name. Oh, I love that name. All right, back to the story. Okay. While he was incarcerated, Beatrice gave birth to a baby who she gave up for adoption. And she only saw her once husband once more after they got together after he got out of jail. And he said, our marriage wasn't real anyway, because I was already married when we got married. So it didn't count. Um, Of course, that wasn't true. um, But he (laughs) was a pathological liar. So... After jail, he moved to London, where he became a chauffeur, and he was arrested a few more times for various fraudulent doings, like buying cars with bad checks, or he would pretend to be a lawyer, or he would frequently sell fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his dead quote-unquote clients. And eventually he was caught when someone noticed that he had misspelled his fake name. Like, can you imagine you're buying stocks from someone and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, shouldn't you know that your name is Guildford and not Guilford? And anyway, so he was sentenced to four years for fraud once again. Now, as a young person, High's father had told him that um, when he was a kid, he became blemished with a blue mark on his forehead, which was a result of him sinning. This was the father. This was the father. Happened to the father. Yes. Okay. And he said that it was a sign of the devil due to the slightest wrongdoing. And so... of course, High was grew up being terrified of this mark of the devil, and he was told his whole childhood that his mother had never had such a mark because she was an angel. Hmm. So as High got older and started, this is young High, mm-hmm. and started to partake in these wrongdoings and wasn't receiving a mark from the devil, he kind of started to think that he was invincible. Like, oh, oh no. no one's noticing these things that I'm doing, right? We're also pretty sure that he had narcissistic personality disorder. So, mm. you know. Anyway, so High's in prison and he came to the realization that, yeah, he'd been making the wrong choices and that going forward, he had to make some changes. And that meant not leaving his victims alive. <laughs> no. No, you're going the wrong way on this high. He became uh, obsessed with French murderer Georges Alexandre Seurat, whose signature had been dissolving his victims in sulfuric acid. So during his free time, he uh, was doing some reading and devised his own method of dissolving bodies in various forms of acid. If acid is a hobby for you, Mm. that's a warning sign. He began practicing on mice. See, I knew I didn't like this guy. Mm -hmm. High was freed from prison once again and became an accountant with an engineering firm. So how does this felon keep getting jobs, like good jobs? Mm. But it's said that he was pretty decent to look at and uh, like so many psychos, um, charming is all get out. That's what they said about H.H. Holmes. Yeah. Was that he was the most charming of men. 
right before he bludgeoned you to death and burned you in his basement. So while tootling about town being a pathological liar, High bumped into one of his many former employers, William McSwan. And McSwan introduced High to his parents, Donald and Amy. Now, McSwan worked for his parents by collecting rents on their London properties, and High became very envious of this guy's lifestyle. Which rent collection really doesn't seem like the life to me, <laughs> but you know, I I'm not here to judge. That is exactly what I'm doing here. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah, judging this guy. You are, and I approve. He, he's garbage. Well, he's an acid guy. All right. So High lured McSwan into an abandoned basement and hit him over the head with a stick or something. I'm not sure. Um, and using his newfound favorite disposal method, he put McSwan's body into a 40 gallon drum and filled it with concentrated sulfuric acid. He then took over McSwan's landlord duties. He told the McSwan's family that uh, McSwan had taken off to avoid being drafted because remember, it's wartime. This is exactly what Holmes did, H.H. Holmes. He took over the couple's drugstore in Chicago. Very similar. Wow. High also lived on the McSwan's property and took control of his money. Two days later, McSwan was unfortunately acided down, boiled down, if you will, Mm. into a, you know, I mean, he was liquefied and high poured his remains down a manhole. Now, eventually the elder McSwans became very suspicious as their son had not returned home, even though the draft was over. So high invited them over saying that their son had returned and he was very excited to see them. You can see where this goes, yeah, right? I'm, I mean, I'm you're, you're figuring yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was the barrels for them. Um, and High then stole their pension checks and sold the Swans family properties. High is now living the life of luxury. But the McSwan money wasn't going to last long, so he moved on to his next targets. Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose. Now, he had feigned interest in a house that these two were selling, and he was invited to their apartment to play piano for their housewarming party. So while he's playing piano and entertaining this family, uh, he toodles about their house to see what he could steal. Uh, One of the things he found was a revolver, and then he invited the Hendersons over to discuss the selling of their property, and it was the same acid bath situation as the McSwans after being shot, by the way, with their own stolen gun. Did he dump them down a manhole too? Oh, yeah. Uh, He then forged a letter with their signatures and sold all of their possessions except for their car and their dog, which he kept. Now, it's 1949, and High has rented a larger warehouse on Leopold Road with more space for his drums. (laughs) He meets 69-year-old... Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. Olive had been an active suffragette in her day, even spending a night in jail after throwing a brick through a window. Votes for women! Votes for women! She was also very creative and a bit of an inventor, and she had this idea to produce a patent for artificial fingernails, because it was 1949 and it was post-war, and women wanted to feel a little bit of glamour. And so she shared this idea with High. Now, Olive had the money to move forward with such a project. She was the wealthy widow of a solicitor named John Duran Deacon. And since High was calling himself an engineer and showed interest in her idea, he invited her over to his place to discuss it. 
Oh. Yep. It was the barrel for her. It was the barrel for her. Oh, no. Two days later, Olive's friends became concerned she was missing. And of course they did. She sounds awesome. Anyway, High offers to bring Constance Lane to report her friend missing to the Popo, which is so arrogant. Like, oh, yeah, no, I'll just take you. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So Constance is telling the police about her missing friend and a lady police sergeant becomes pretty suspicious of High's mannerisms. Hmm. He's acting a little sus. So looking into him, they discovered that High had recently sold some jewelry. And also when they investigated his attache case, it contained some dry cleaners receipts for a fine fur coat that Olive had owned which seemed weird that he would be dry cleaning this woman's coat. Hmm. Mm -hmm. In addition, police also found papers referring to the Hendersons and the McSwans, both of these couples now missing. It all seemed a bit much. So they went to High's new larger warehouse that he'd rented, behind which there was a rubble pile. And an observant pathologist spotted what he recognized as a couple of human gallstones. Then, with more digging about, they found a set of false teeth. Acid won't dissolve gallstones? I guess not. That's fascinating. Yeah. Apparently, High hadn't made sure that his new fancy warehouse had a drain for his disposal needs, so he just dumped the barrel remains out back. Well, he was getting lazy. Inside the workshop, of course, police found a large metal drum and beside it several containers of acid, a revolver and gloves and an apron spattered with acid. Mm. So High was arrested and charged with murder. High then confessed that he had killed Duran Deacon, the McSwans and the Hendersons, as well as three other people. A young man called Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith, though these claims couldn't be substantiated. He was asking a lot of questions about the likelihood of someone being released from a local psychiatric hospital if they'd been charged with murder and deemed insane. Mm -hmm. So it was really no surprise when, at the trial, High pleaded insanity. He also claimed that in addition to the murders, he'd been drinking the blood of his victims. Was he really drinking the blood or was this part of his insanity defense? Mm, yeah, there's no evidence that he was drinking the blood. And they, most people are on board with this was just part of his wanting mm. to be able to plead insanity. That he was building a case for his insanity, if you will. On July 18, 1949, 4,000 people crowded into the courthouse hoping to get a seat. This case was wild. High had no money to pay for his defense, so News of the World did a deal with him and offered to pay for his counsel if they he would provide them with an exclusive. I had no idea that News of the World went back that far. Yeah. This is the same paper that broke the news on Bat Boy. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Maybe it's a different News of the World. I don't know. But during the trial, the editor of the Daily Mirror was sentenced to a three-month prison term for contempt because he had described High in the newspaper as a murderer while the trial was still underway. And he was only a suspected murderer, right? Mm -hmm. Now, because High had initially inquired about getting released from this psychiatric hospital, it appeared as though he was thinking of using insanity to get him off the hook. And it took the 
jury only 15 minutes to come to a conclusion. Now, it probably took them four minutes to get to the jury room. That's right. And Most another, of them had to pee. Right. Go outside, have a butt first, and then come back in. So they had their minds made up. They, they knew what was up. High was found guilty. The judge asked High if he had anything to say for himself, and he said, nothing at all. So he was sentenced to death. According to History Press, High's last few days were spent making sure that he was known as this clever vampire with the perfect crime, which is a great example of you how you can be charming and clever and still a fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. Because... You didn't commit the perfect crime, dum-dum. You're in you're jail. You're in jail. You're a murderer, and you're on death row. Before his execution, he wrote, When I first discovered there were easier ways to make a living than to work long hours in an office, I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. That seemed to me to be irrelevant. I merely said, this is what I mean to do. Wow. So on August 10, 1949, High was hanged by executioner Albert Pierpoint. Now, Albert Pierpoint had a link in High's Wikipedia article, and I was like, weird that the hangman would have a link, right? So I went to check him out. And apparently, Albert Pierpoint was an English hangman who executed between 435 and 600 people in his 25-year career that ended in 1956. Wow, he was prolific. He was prolific. But he wasn't just a hangman. He was of hangman lineage. His father had been a hangman, and his father's father had been a hangman. And since a very young age, Albert knew that the hangman's life was for him. (laughs) Uh, Wow. And I just thought that was really interesting. So um, there you go. John George High an idiot and a murderer, and uh, also Albert Pierpoint, apparently a very prolific hangman. Well, that was brutal. Yeah, Um, it was a little rough. Yeah, that was, uh, wow. So how many in total did he kill? I didn't count them up while while you were naming them off. Six confirmed, and and then he claimed to have three others. Okay, all right, wow. I got most of my information from the historypress.co.uk, allthisinteresting.com, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, and, of course, Wikipedia. As we mentioned earlier, the uh, shallow end with Schnebly and Toth, that'll be dropping very soon. We've had a lot of emails, people saying, hey, I can't find it. It's not out yet. It's in post-production. But it will be very soon. Uh, you can hear a sneak preview. We, we actually uploaded the first episode to Patreon for the Order of Freaks who support the show. And if you would like to get a sneak peek and become a supporter, a member of the Order of Freaks, go to theboxofoddities.com. Or just look for us on Patreon. And we thank you so much for your love and your support. And I'm still getting messages about my boob. And I just, I think that I am a very lucky lady to have so many people concerned about my taters. Yeah, well, they're lovely. And, you know, first of all, but she got her radiology images back. <laughs> yep. And she is now, for supporters on Patreon, she is, uh, she's making art out of them. Yeah, I've, I've started a series yep. um, of, of art using my, <laughs> my mammogram images. <laughs> Neil Armstrong in one of them is, is walking on her boob. Yeah. So you don't want to miss that. 
We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.